0: Yo, have you heard of LinkedIn Learning? If you haven't, LinkedIn Learning is an American massive open online course provider. It provides video courses taught by industry experts in a variety of subjects. Now, why am I sharing this? I'm sharing this because Living Corporate is in partnership with LinkedIn Learning to provide diversity, equity, and inclusion courses. Listen, if you're trying to be a better ally, you want to understand better diversity, equity, inclusion strategies, or you just want to learn how to be a better leader. You got to check out the courses on LinkedIn learning. So check it out. You can do it one of two ways. You can click the link in the show notes or you go to LinkedIn learning and you search living corporate again, link in the show notes or go to LinkedIn learning and search living corporate. I'll see you over there. Hey, yo, y'all got to wake up. <laughs> wake up! <laughs> I get your attention. Did I get it? Look, um, today's interview is with uh, Michelle Kim, author of *The Wake Up*, talking about this work, talking about equitable workplaces, and like how folks need to really wake up, wake the hell up. I'll even say, no her book isn't wake the hell up. I'm adding that for emphasis. Okay. Um, But no, really great conversation we have with her. I want y'all to check it out. Make sure you click the link in the show notes. Learn more about Michelle Kim, the incredible work she's doing. You know, I appreciate Michelle. I was just actually talking uh, to someone about memorable interviews that I've had. And of course, all of our interviews are incredible. What I appreciate about Michelle and a few other people, like in the, the years of doing Living Corporate, is sometimes you have these interviews where you just feel warm. You know, you feel like the conversation, it, it's it's therapy for you. If you feel a certain level of gentleness, like you're being taken care of, like in while you're having the conversation, which is like a unique thing. I, I imagine that other interviewers can relate to what I'm saying. Sometimes like this work can be really draining and um, and laborious just emotionally and mentally and spiritually. And so it's it's great when you can talk to people And in the conversation, feel refreshed. I recall specifically after this interview, I walked away feeling much more refreshed. And so I want to thank Michelle just for her spirit, for her attitude, um, and just for her work and and all of the contribution that she makes both um, on stage and behind the scenes. So before we listen to Michelle, you know, what we got to do unless you're a first time listener. If you're a first time listener, welcome. We get first time listeners every week. You know what I'm saying? Shout out to y'all. Um, for the first time listeners, this is where we tap in with Tristan. Tristan Layfield is a career coach and resume consultant. Um, he does incredible work. Make sure if you haven't already um, clicked in and tapped in with Tristan, learned about his content, learned about his services, that you do that. Tristan is a subject matter expert when it comes to career management and resume writing okay so with that being said we're going to tap into his segment and then we're going to get to our conversation with michelle see you soon
1: what's going on living corporate it's tristan and i want to thank you for tapping back in with me as i provide some tips and advice for professionals this week i want to have an honest conversation on expanding your view of what options are available to you I've been having conversations with job seekers who tell me that their job is wearing them out and they're looking for something different. They wanted to change their job so badly that they hop on job boards and start looking for new positions. When I ask them to provide me with some job descriptions that have piqued their interest, they send me postings for the exact role they told me they wanted to leave. Have you ever been in that position? Don't worry, it's a common mistake and most of us aren't even aware that we're doing it. There are typically three reasons why job seekers fall down this pigeonhole. First, they are comfortable in those type of roles. Second, they think they've reached a pinnacle and believe those roles are the best they can do. And third, they aren't sure what other options are out there that may align with their skill sets. To me, all of those lead to one thing. They have a very narrow view of what they want to do and where it is possible to do it. If you find yourself scrolling through pages and pages of the same position that you said you wanted to get away from, work to expand your view. Become aware of what other career opportunities may be out there. Otherwise, you're going to be dealing with the same mess in a similar role, just at a different company. If you aren't sure where to start, seek out some help You may want to start with a mentor or sponsor, but ultimately, I'd suggest trying to work with a career coach to help you think outside of the box and identify roles you didn't know existed but are perfect for the experience you have. Thanks for tapping in with me today. Don't forget, I'm now taking submissions from you all on career questions, issues, concerns, or advice you think may be helpful for others. So make sure to submit yours at bit.ly forward slash tapintristan. That's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash T-A-P-I-N-T-R-I-S-T-A-N. This tip was brought to you by Tristan of Layfield Resume Consulting. Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Layfield Resume, or connect with me, Tristan Layfield, on LinkedIn.
0: Michelle, welcome to the show. Welcome back.
2: Thank you for having me back.
0: Listen, you know, you've been all around, right? Like you got your book launch, um, you know, you've been, of course, you've been talking DEI for a while. Uh, you're the CEO, founder of Awaken.co. Co. Um, how are you?
2: Oh, that's a heavy question these days. <laughs> I'm all we the,
0: rescheduled.
2: Yeah, we rescheduled a few times. You know, mm-hmm. with the with the war, um, <laughs> with the Atlanta um, shootings the anniversary, and the anti-Asian violence that's been. Um, you know, on the rise again. And I've also had some personal, um, health issues. So I appreciate the flexibility. Um, I've been holding a lot of complexity in this moment and also trying to make room for joy and healing through having conversations like this. So I'm excited to be in conversation with you.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting. I, you know, I, I, I think as I get, as I continue to, like, just kind of engage in this space, uh, Michelle, I think I'm just starting to kind of see see the nonsense, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm mm-hmm. starting to peep the jig, as young <laughs> people say. Um,
2: is that what young people <laughs> say?
0: <laughs> I guess. I don't know. They'll so say, like, the jig. And then, like, they'll post pictures of, like, people pointing up because, like, the jig is up. Mm-hmm. I, I just, I, I just, um, I'm curious to get your perspective on, like, on, like, diversity, equity, inclusion work like in the typical corporate context, like one, like what do you think is going on? Yeah. And then two, like what is awakened? What are you doing that is different than that?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, the whole reason why I co-founded awaken was because of what I saw happening in the corporate space around DEI that felt so whitewashed, white led white centered and diluted from the work of social justice. Um, you know, I started my work really in grassroots organizing when I was a youth activist, when I was in the queer and trans people of color um, activism space. That's really the start of my DEI journey, if you will. Um, and then when I found my way into corporate America and saw how DEI was being talked about and, you know, executed on, it really uh, caused a lot of cognitive dissonance for me in terms of comparing the real sort of um, systemic oppression that we're addressing and working on in the grassroots organizing world versus what folks were talking about and packaging as, you know, equity work. Um, But really, that was diluted and so disconnected from the roots of social justice that felt really harmful and violent. So, you know, starting Awaken for me was my way of bridging that gap and ensuring that when we're talking about DEI, let's talk about it as if it's an extension of social justice work and that we don't forget the core messages or dilute it or whitewash it, um, but make it still accessible enough that people can still interact with it, grapple with it in the corporate setting. Um, And, uh, you know, the book is sort of the culmination of some of the lessons learned and the stories that I've shared um, in it are my lived experiences, both as a queer woman of color, but also as somebody who's navigated so many different spaces, including the grassroots world, but also corporate America, consulting, and having spent you know numerous years in the tech landscape doing this work.
0: You know, it, it's interesting because you, you talk a bit about social justice. You use the word social justice several times. Like how do you how do you combat or respond to like just how um, white narratives are now leveraging that language in a in a, as a pejorative, right? So like what is like what is that what does that mean when you say social <laughs> yeah. justice and DEI work?
2: You know, I just I feel immense frustration seeing how words that come from the social justice world get co-opted and get exploited and used um, in such a way that it gets so diluted and far from the original intent of the word, like things like allyship, I feel has become so diluted to a point where now people are kind of making fun of the word um, in some spaces. And so for me, I feel like when I talk about social justice, it's defined to me by a set of principles. Um, Like I talk about in the book, the importance of the principle of centering the most marginalized communities at all times when we're thinking about creating processes, policies, um, or doing any type of movement work in or outside of the workplace, that when we are working from a place of centering the most marginalized people and their voices, their needs, and their um, uh, humanity and healing, that should be the core of how we do this work. And that is a principle of social justice, in my opinion. Um, versus when we just look at this work as an extracurricular activity, like most companies do in terms of when they see and think about DEI work, um, and they look at this from a a sort of very theoretical, academic, intellectualized, best practices lens. I feel like some of those principles get really lost and, and misconstrued to a point where DEI work now is looked at as a marketing ploy versus the real work that gets to address the systems of oppression that we're trying to dismantle
0: it's so scary like to your point like because what i'm noticing is <clears throat> even you know you we were just talking offline so like living corporate really like we've had partnerships with pfizer and live ramp shout out live ramp what's up cam what's up blah 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 but the point is like we've been we've been out here working as like a as like a an amplifier and a DEI marketing platform and a different ways to really help engage black and brown folks like both internally and externally but it's interesting because like we've also had propositions from certain brands or companies that may want to do something but they but they're not open to like the way that we talk about this work mm-hmm. or the way that we talk about black and Brown experiences. And so to your point, like you said, marketing, so it just sort of tipped my ear because I do think there's avenues for DEI marketing, but like the ways that it happens so often is extremely co-opted. It's not authentic or honest to uh marginalized experience. And then on top of that, um, some of it outright is just it seems to be like really like dei, there's a, such a large segment of Dei to me that seems to be um, really camouflage uh, to help really to drive assimilation, right? Mm, so it's yeah. it, it's it's complete it's not even actually about uh, dismantling a thing.
2: It's okay. about
0: right. So and so sometimes folks we leverage like certain like historical language as meant for healing or for reformation. And we, and we use it and we, um, we point it internally. So basically DEI becomes some coping mechanism for you to better bear the brunt of uh, these capitalistic and patriarchal
2: systems. Ooh, you just said a lot there. <laughs> but I agree. I agree. And I think sometimes it gets really um, complex to discern that, right? And to really draw the line. I mean, I talk about how representation in and of itself is such a tricky subject for us to navigate because on the one hand, we celebrate different representation of community marginalized communities and positions of power or whatever. Um, but that doesn't necessarily translate to changing the pattern of oppression, right? We can, we see sometimes people who look like us um, replicating the same levels of harm and types of oppression in different systems that they're a part of. And so how do we, make sure that we are doing everything that we can to really be clear about when systemic change is happening and when it's not being um, done in a way that actually, you know, centers the most marginalized people for the long term and doing, um, you know, more than just putting different faces in places that we want to see power being held.
0: So much of this space, and I think I tweeted about it, but I've also seen other people talk about it too. It's like, I think I'm just growing increasingly disinterested with diversifying capitalism. Like I don't actually, I don't know, this is my, this look, I don't live in corporate. So I'll say, I, I I don't actually care about like um, the, uh, the sole black or Brown person being up there just for representation's sake, because if I engage them and I understand their ethics and their praxis, like it doesn't, they're not actually trying to do anything that would, uh, move the needle or push the ball forward or whatever euphemism you want to use when it comes to actually driving, creating liberation or dismantling harmful systems, you know, like I I have so many conversations, you know, you talk to folks and it's like everyone's just trying to get to the top of the Hill. They're not actually trying to like knock the Hill down or level anything. They just want to, they just want to be on top. Um, And I, I guess like, as I, as i as i think about that and like this work in this space like i'm curious like you've talked like last time you were on we talked about like even the term people of color and bipoc and all those different things and i recall you gave some fairly thoughtful answers as it pertains to um you know east asian representation in the people of color framework like i'd love to like kind of hear you expand more upon that in terms of like one, the term itself. And then, and then two like um, um, where East Asian identity kind of comes into play. I, I think it's really complex. I don't believe that I have the the range to engage it thoughtfully. And so I'd love just to hear you talk more about it. Then I might ask a couple of
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, before we get there, I think something that you just said um, around, you know, diversifying capitalism and not being interested in having, you know, people climbing the hill for the sole purpose of just individual success. Um, and I think also the disappointment that comes from people who are part of marginalized identities, um, not doing more than just representing and being the token um, and not doing more to actually dismantle the systems. And I, I think it's such a common, you um, sense of disappointment that I hear from so many people. And I've had struggled, I've, I've struggled with myself, when I've worked with people in positions of power who, you know, occupy different marginalized identities, and yet they are not only upholders of systems of oppression, but they are, um, you know, active participants in it, in continuing it. And I think the tricky part and the complexity comes in when we start to check ourselves with the kind of pressure that we put on marginalized people to do more than just do their job and to exist that we wouldn't expect from white people. Right. And so when we start to be like, I have to check my own disappointment in me wanting more from people of color and women and, you know, differently marginalized people in positions of power and just appreciating, like, can we have a, when we get to a place where we can just appreciate people doing and living and existing in their own right, without having to shoulder disproportionate amount of burden to do more to dismantle systems of oppression, I think that is the type of place that I would like for us to get to. That we're not there yet, um, because I think oftentimes a critique gets so, so harsh and rushed when it comes to people of color in positions of power who are who did not sign up for um, DEI positions, right? Right. Um, True. Fair and i think there is ample amount of uh, critique that we can we can you know have around internalized oppression of folks in different positions of power and how they're wielding the power right so i think this i'm what i'm wanting is sort of not the disproportionate amount of burden being placed on marginalized people um, in positions where they are you know um not being yeah <laughs>
0: no that's fair that's tough like it's fa- it's it's tough it's frustrating to hear but you're not wrong in that like and i think of the other pieces that like you know we're all being subject to this exploitative system that's right right um that's folk that's really built on scarcity a scarcity mindset it's built on of course capitalism patriarchy white supremacy it's built on harm and so we're all really kind of doing the best we can to survive in the ways that we can and so You know, I I temper my critique with like some level of like, I I would say, hopefully empathy, because like we do like I I don't want to shame anybody for how they how they survive, as long as they're not surviving at my at the expense of my humanity.
2: Right. Right. Yeah. And so
0: I think like that's where when I think about some of this work and then even when you think about like just just work it's like it's so harsh like it's so much so like when i think about consulting like thank god i'm not a consultant it's but it's like corporate america on like like times a thousand like it's very much it's like your typical, but it's like everything sped up to like 40 50 everything is just very harsh and fast it's about you working 20 hours um you know it's about you you know what you about you working 12 hours back to back or taking on three or four different projects and And so when I think about, like, the labor and the physical toil, toll it takes on you, and I think about people who are in these positions of authority, it's like, dang, I'm not asking you to be um, uh, Kwame Ture. I am asking if you could just, like, not shit on me so bad. Like, Mm -hmm. can you see I'm getting jacked up over here? Can you just say something? Can you help? Can you think about somebody other than yourself? But I also do hear your point around the fact that, like, like, everyone does not sign up to be that. I just, I I would, I would, I would hope I I would, my wish, my dream would be. And again, this is part of capital, like part of our American culture is so much, it's so highly individualistic.
2: Mm. Like
0: we, we champion individualism. We don't just culturally, we don't really, we don't really celebrate or, or engage community. We don't even think like, we don't even think collaboratively, right. Let alone communally. Right. So like, I, I I hear you. It's just it's tough. It's I tough.
2: know. It's yeah. Tough. And it's not that we should be um, you know, we should absolve people in positions of power for exploiting and causing harm onto marginalized people if they hold marginalized identities. That's not, I think, the point at all. It's it's that let's be really critical about how we are holding all leaders in positions of power accountable, right? Yeah. Versus yeah. disproportionately aiming at um, marginalized people and putting additional burden of labor on them um, when we are not doing that same thing for white leaders um, and other now leaders that's, and a, that's a fact privilege. too. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's a fact too. Cause um, I'm definitely, and I'll say this too, as someone who like, I've, I'm very people who work with me now and who've worked with me in the past will tell you, I am candid to a fault. And I'll definitely hit y'all both. Like, nah, y'all, you, bob over there is acting up and you could do better too right so so i hear your point um i asked you a bunch of different questions so I, but i do want to talk i, w- I do want to talk about like this di- like the dynamic of like particularly like east asian represent and i recognize michelle you you only one person you can only speak for like a fifth of all asian, <laughs> asian so i'm not asking you you know what i'm saying <laughs> but, but i would love i would love this to hear hear your perspective right because like I, there's so many different things happening simultaneously i so I'd love just to kind of hear you talk a little bit about, about that East Asian identity in the DEI space and, and the dynamics therein.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I feel like the Asian identity in general is something that is so complex and nuanced. And yet we often get so little visibility in this work. And I think there's still so much to be talked about and understood around the diaspora and the AAPI as a community as a whole. Um, And to your point, you know, I I talk a lot about um, the need for us to start disaggregating the data and understanding the specific terminology, right? So let's not um, talk about East Asian issues only when we are celebrating AAPI Heritage Month. Right. And within the Asian American umbrella, there are so many different ethnicities. There's East Asian identity, South Asians, Southeast Asians. Um, So there are so many different identities and stories that get um, flattened and we become a monolith so easily in the eyes of, you know, DEI folks doing this work without paying attention to those um, details. Um, and in terms of you know understanding the Asian, East Asian experiences in the workplace, I mean, I can really only speak for my own experience and my journey to understanding how and where I fit in in the conversation around social justice and diversity, equity and inclusion because for so long and for so many people, the conversation has been black and white, and any sort of other identities that fall um, in between get lost in the shuffle. Um, and I think that when the anti-Asian violence started really erupting, um, I was in conversation with many organizations that didn't even have a plan or strategy around, you know, empowering their Asian employees. And I think that was a, a wake up call for a lot of folks in how they're approaching their racial justice work and why, um, why it is that Asians and particularly East Asians are so often categorized as a model minority, right? Who do not experience the types of oppression that other uh, communities of color experience because of this false myth that Asians are doing fine. They, are, they have it better than the rest. Um, and I think there's also some portions of our community that have a lot of internalized oppression around that and who have not been politicized, who have not felt the, the desire, the need, or the, um, the capacity to engage in these conversations, who are just starting to join the fold in demanding, you know, more visibility and more action towards their empowerment.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting, because like, so I guess my my f- couple follow up questions are like, what does it look like to one? Hold on, let me back up before I ask that question. You said something earlier about like DEI really just being very binary, black and white, right? Um, men, women, black, white,
2: mm-hmm.
0: sh- straight gay, maybe sometimes. They don't really yeah. do that a lot, but sometimes. Um
2: Bi Erasure is real. Biphobia is right. real. Yep.
0: Right. And so, you know, like do you think like the lack of just like intersectional practice or analysis um, is is it incompetence? Is it laziness? Is it both? Is it ignorance? <laughs> it's hard for me. This yeah yeah look it's it's twenty twenty two right? So I'm you know you know I we shoot it straight over here. No pun intended. Uh, I am (laughs) here. You know what I mean. Okay. Okay. So, but my point we shoot it. We're keeping it honest. It's 2022. I feel like we know that like gay, like queer black people exist that like, that women who are also black or brown exist that like disabled East Asians exist like, but I don't, but we're not, we're not we're, we're, we still aren't really um, communicating that Mm and our like, our messaging isn't intersectional. So I'm curious, like why do you think we're still not being intersectional in our, in our engagement of this space and this work on um, po- on popular in the popular, in the mainstream?
2: Yeah, I think, well, a couple of things. I think there is definitely, you know, ignorance and I think it's important for us to kind of trace that ignorance back to how our systems manufacture very intentionally that ignorance in the masses that we don't teach these things in school, right? When we think about the invisibility of Asian Americans and our history, we're not taught the vast majority of our historical um, facts and stories and our activism in school. We don't talk about it. So in part, I think it's a deliberate way of maintaining that ignorance as a society, um, which makes it a lot more difficult for us to move the needle on these conversations. A uh, second reason why I think that sometimes we lack the intersectional analysis is because still, I think so many folks think of these issues as being siloed and separate. Um, I hear this very often when I was, um, you know, in the midst of all the anti-Asian violence that was happening, I started posting about um, challenging anti-Black racism as a part of that work. And also the importance of um, moving in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. And the messages that I received included disappointment and hurt and worries about, you know, are we yet again um, putting aside our issues to show up for other communities? What about us? You know, how could you show up for these communities at, at a time when, you know, all of us are in so much suffering? And that broke my heart in part because, one, there was so much trauma in my community that was being processed without a lot of guidance. And two, because that showed me how our community was still talking about and thinking about our issue as being separate from anti-Black racism and Black Lives Matter movement. So the important thing is for me to then connect the dots and tell my folks that I'm not showing up for the Black Lives Matter march because I have Black friends. I'm showing up also because I know the forces that are oppressing you is oppressing my people. So when I show up for Black people, it's not just because I care about Black people as friends and you know, as a good person. It's also because I know that our liberation is tied together. Because I know if I dismantle white supremacy that's oppressing Black folks, then I'm also fighting for my people at the same time. But I don't think people are drawing those connections. And I don't think people think about, you know, within the Asian community, there are Black people. There are Black Asians. There, within the Asian community, there are queer people. So if we're not intersectional, we're also not serving our community. Because there are queer trans people in our community. There are undocumented people in our community. There are imprisoned people, incarcerated people in our community, right? So the more people can tie these uh, loose ends and really connect the dots to see that all of our issues, all of our struggles are so inextricably tied and connected to one another's that there is really, as Audre Lorde said, there is no single issue struggle because we don't live single issue lives. So I think that's really at the crux of it.
0: You know, it's always refreshing uh, to talk to you. You know, as I, as I think about um, as I think about like, the next phase of this journey, I can't help but think about Gen Z. They're continuing to come into the workforce. They're my siblings. They're my cousins. Um, I, I just I don't know if organizations are prepared.
2: They like, they're, hardly, never, they're hardly prepared
0: to deal with millennials. <laughs> exactly. So I know they that. They never
2: I, were. Yeah. And they, I don't know. I don't think they are.
0: <laughs> like, am I wrong? I mean, you know, it seems as if not, it seems as if they're going to be like the most like diverse, probably politically aware and engaged, um, technologically savvy, if not necessarily technically savvy, but tech understanding technology group that's ever really come into the workforce in mass. I mean, what? What thoughts are, or, or what perspective? What thoughts do you have about executive leaders as they get ready to receive this new class of workers?
2: You know, my advice to people in positions of power, especially executive leaders, have always been: get out of their way, <laughs> get out of the way, and cede some power. Right? I think that's some. Some of the most difficult conversations that I had with leaders is talking about what they're willing to give up to do the work that they say they are committed to doing. I'm not putting words into people's mouths. I am not in the business of trying to change people's minds. I'm not in the business of trying to get people who don't care to care, right? My job is to hold up the mirror and show people when they're out of integrity with what they're saying. My job is to show people that, hey, you said you have commitments around these things and you have these values. And in order for you to be in alignment with those values, this is the conversation we need to have. And part of that is understanding what they need to give up, what they're willing to forgo, whether it's time, resources, power, reputation, whatever, what what have you. Um, But that's been the toughest conversation with leaders because I don't think most people calculate the amount of work or the trade-offs that they are needing to make in order to create equity because the status quo is imbalanced, right? The power is not in um, the hands of the most marginalized people. So in order for us to create that um, change, we need to give up some resources and power. So for the Gen Z coming in, I feel... I feel that there are so many ways in which that we can center the most marginalized people, not just in Gen Z generation, but all generations. And, you know, I feel like the education spreads faster because of social media these days and um, the conversations can advance quickly because of the information that's out there, which I think is a great thing. Um, And if Gen Z and I, I don't hold the, um, I don't, I don't hold on to the belief that younger generation by default are more progressive, Um, because as we've seen from studies, the millennial generation is actually just as racist as their predecessors, Um, because, you know, if we're not doing that work intergenerationally, then the outcome is still going to be the same. So my hope is that as we welcome new generations, we also open up the possibilities for Younger people having that voice, that power to be able to create change, and not to break them down so quickly in a way that um, only seeds resentment and cynicism in doing this work, because that's what I see over and over again when young, mm-hmm. you know, uh, people who believe in the possibility of change join these companies, and they are met with challenge after challenge, and the gaslighting after gaslighting. It is so hard to hold on to that hope that change is possible, right? It's so hard. hold. It's so easy to be cynical and jaded about the kinds of change that you can see inside workplaces, especially in corporate America, especially in tech. And what I want to, what I really want our young people to feel is that sense of encouragement, the sense of community, the sense of intergenerational support and solidarity so that they can hold on to that hope and not be written off as being idealist, who doesn't know anything, and and have their hope be written off as naivete, because that's so often what this world does to us. So I just want to encourage our young people to hold on to that hope and be that idealist, be called naive, because I believe that change is possible if we can all be willing to move forward together.
0: Come on, Michelle.
2: Um,
0: <laughs> So, you know, it's interesting. I got a couple more things because recently I said something and you responded and said "The, the lack of quality control in this space is ridiculous. Talk about what you mean when you say lack of quality control.
2: Oh, so specifically in the DEI space, I think we've observed as a discipline, a lot of newcomers who are excited about this work which I think in and of itself is a good thing. I think since the 2020, um, the murder of George Floyd and the black lives matter movement, I th- really energize people from all walks of life to want to join in this movement toward social justice. And I also see that enthusiasm and desire to do something being um, carried out without the intentionality and the thoughtfulness um, on all- multiple parties part. So a lot of people are entering this work without the necessary foundation and grounding of what it is that they're really fighting for. Um, and I think a lot of companies are taking that also opportunity to be very performative in their work and are quick to hire people without betting um, what it, what it is that they're trying to achieve um, or without really thinking through their why and without really thinking through their um, overall goal. So with the the growing um, number of people who are doing DEI work as their profession, without a lot of training, without a lot of, you know, grounding or values that are being guided by social justice, mixed with very sort of opportunistic companies that are quick to throw money at people to just check off a list of uh, to do's. And say that they've done something without having changed anything in a fundamental way, that mix become really disorienting um, in order for us to actually create sustainable and meaningful change that's aligned to the values of the movement as a whole. So that's what I mean by lack of quality control. People don't know how to vet people. Um, And, uh, you know, I think that's also a big problem is that people who are hiring consultants, people who are hiring DEI people internally, don't have a good sense of how to evaluate people's competencies, right? Um, And this is, I've, I've heard some horror stories about how DEI trainings have gone, you know, very, very wrong, because the facilitator simply did not have the the competency to hold such nuanced, complex conversations that end up creating a lot of ripple effects of harm that's difficult to undo, um, and that ends up causing a lot of you know jadedness and cynicism on the part of marginalized employees who are watching this just burn.
0: You know, it's because you know it's interesting. I, I see this like trend, and I think I was talking to who I don't know. I was talking to Doctor Doctor Session. I don't know. I was talking to somebody it just gives me scammer vibes. Like when I see content and I'll give you an example, that home Depot scandal, right? People got mad about the home Depot content. I looked at it and I was like, okay, yeah, I see why y'all are mad. Like, and like unpopular opinion, Michelle, I don't actually think that type of training is beneficial. Like at a work in a workplace. I don't think that that matters. Like, I think it's, I think you can easily Google those things. You can make a PowerPoint slide and you turn it vertical and you print it out and you have training, right? (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like, what are we talking about? Why do I care about police brutality when I'm working at Home Depot? I need to organize these screwdrivers and put these nails up. I need to clock in and clock out on time. Like, <clears throat> it's just easy to just go intersectionality, police brutality, misogyny, racism, and then like put them in a blender and then throw up on a piece of paper and then ask people to sign something and then maybe make some commitments. And then you leave and you, and you, and you've netted $20,000 in like 30 minutes. And it's like, if not more, you know, cause I, I, I hear, I hear the numbers. I know what folks charging out here. All right. So, but my point is, it's like, it's like, it's so much like one, one, like it's, it's that, that type of work. Like I, and I'm not saying that like knowing about those things are, are not valuable because they do have value. They don't have, they, they don't have. Immediate impact and value in like a nine to five job that like unless like now if you're an academic or you're, I don't know, but like so much more so so much more what I would appreciate is someone doing a true organizational assessment of an institution reviewing their policies, their practices, their procedures, looking at their org layout, their representation, maybe doing some sentiment analysis and like pairing that to see, okay, here's how people feel. Here's how people feel. Here are the demographics of those feelings. We know that Gen X black women in this department feel like this compared to white women like this. Here's what. Here's how much you're getting paid. Blah, blah, blah. So a true blue org assessment and then take the um grassroots movements and historical liberation exercises and activities and philosophies that we have in america and then apply all that to then fixing the problems of the actual organization now see what i just said a bunch of people are gonna hear that and be like that sounds super complex they just do a bunch of words together but that's actually the work in my my perspective that's the work it's like no it's a combination of qualitative and quantitative analysis it's a combination and leadership coaching and development change management and uh it's it's a uh coaching and policy like over several quarters right like so like what i just described is probably like a two-year exercise the analysis alone is going to take you like four to six weeks right the readout like so so it's tough for me when i think when i see like content and it's, it's almost like and again like you know i talk to my therapist about this all the time like and my mentor also, I presume people are way smarter than you are. So let me tell you what I think is going on. I think these organizations know this training is some bullshit. And what they're doing is they're saying, look, we can just check the box. We can say we spent $50,000 and we don't actually have to do anything. Right now, I feel like the Michelle uh, Kims of the world the, the, and the more gentle and probably more empathetic and patient people would say, I don't think that they always know that. I'm sure you would probably say something different. Like, am I am I being too harsh in my assessment?
2: No, I I, I don't think you're being too harsh because I do think that there are companies who are deliberately taking that approach because training is, I think, probably the lowest hanging fruit um, in most people's minds, in terms of signaling that they're doing something rather than doing nothing. So I think the problem that I see is exactly what you're saying in terms of people thinking that training in and of itself is going to cause some type of dramatic transformation inside the organization without any of those other parts that you just talked about. I think training and education serve a very specific purpose in helping people be educated about a very particular topic that they have chosen to explore during that training session. Right? So I don't discount the importance of education and training. I think it's important. But I think also there are so many types of trainings that are out there that are not effective, that are also um, causing harm, and that are just being used as a checkbox exercise. You know, when we talk about, for example, what you were talking about in terms of talking about uh, police brutality, why is that relevant to the workplace? Why is that relevant to the Home Depot employees or any tech employees uh, for that matter? I think there is a very real connection that we can draw that most people won't draw when we're talking about these issues, again, in silos, where, you know, policing of Black people happen in the workplace, too. It looks different, right? Yes. So how do we make those connections, right? Like, so let's take something that is hyper visible right now and very relevant to our society as a whole, but let's make this really, really focused to the employees so that they can learn how their behavior is contributing to the same cycles of oppression of black people in the workplace today, right? That to me is a worthwhile conversation. And how do we then take that learning and apply that to our performance review criteria? How do we take this to then, you know, our hiring policies? How do we take this to changing our benefits policy? So that's the holistic picture of how the work should be happening. Not just, you know, let's do a very bland blanket one hour lunch and learn conversation around unconscious bias. And let's call that <laughs> done. Right. That is not the entire project.
0: I said this. I said this before and it got a couple of blowback. We didn't get it. I didn't get enough heat for it. So I'm going to say it again. I said this a couple of years ago. I really think white folks, they made like the same lab that they made crack in the 80s. They made unconscious bias. That's not a it's a real thing. Don't get me wrong. Like it's real. It's real. Yeah. But a lot of this bias is not unconscious. It'd be mad conscious, Michelle. Michelle, like, this anti-Asian violence, Uh, this is conscious. You know what I'm saying? Like, come on now. Like, I, that is so annoying. Like, I haven't actually seen anybody say unconscious bias. I haven't seen that, like, in my work lately. But I swear, the next time I see somebody saying conscious bias, I'm going to flip the tables over like Jesus in the tabernacle and I'm going to whip somebody because like, I mean, it's insane.
2: Unconscious bias is real, right? It's real. It's real. real. And it's I real. think how people are using the concept of conscious bias as some sort of a silver bullet to all systems of oppression, I think that is such a huge problem and how people are exploiting that to, you know, provide very short-term solutions or not even solutions but just the facade of progress for having done one unconscious bias training i think that is such a an issue that we do need to address
0: so i work the reason why and look unconscious bias clearly is triggering to me but i i'll tell you i'll give you a, a story as to why so um this the the summer or so before george floyd was murdered i was on a project in consulting and i was the only black man and the only man on my team everybody else was a bunch of white women okay and was treated wildly disrespectfully right bunch of betrayals microaggressions macroaggressions um otherization but any word a bunch of words you want to use michelle they apply yeah and someone hit me up after george floyd was murdered and they say, yo like I saw this dead body on camera, made me think of you. I want to text you, see how you're doing. And I was like, but check this out. The person who hit me with that was the same woman who was my manager and who had harmed me several times over. Right. And I named that when I responded because I I took about a day because I was like, am I going to respond? I'm going to pray about it. When black people say, by the way, when people, black folks say they're gonna pray about it, they're not really praying about it. It's just a phrase. It's really, it's a of phrase. Some black people pray, but most of do you know, I'm praying like that. Anyway, point is, I I did actually pray about it though, and I responded, and um, and her response was like, "Yeah, you know, I, you know, it, it must be my unconscious bias," and I was like, "Nah, nah, dog, it wasn't unconscious bias. You you threw me under the bus several times. You lied on me, and then you 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 said you." No, it wasn't unconscious. You you made a bunch of conscious steps and decisions. So anyway, um, you know, like we could talk all day. Like let's talk before we let you go. Let's talk about your latest book, okay? Um, you know, I I, I personally, um, you know, I personally am always excited to hear your words and the fact that like you're able to, um, I don't know, you 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 the way that you present uh, context around issues. Of the day, and you're and you speak to them very thoughtfully. I was really excited to check out the way wake- Now, look, I you didn't send me a, a free copy of the wake up. You know, I don't know what's going on. I get it. I'm not in. I'm not in the elite verified Twitter circles. What that you, rub you didn't shoulders get a, box? a I didn't know. I didn't get a no. <laughs> I didn't get a box. And we do giveaways over here, so maybe we could. I don't know, but but we'll I, make it I happen. Not, don't
2: worry. All right, cool. You. Now,
0: but let's talk a little bit about the wake up. First of all, why did you call it the wake up?
2: You know the wake up as a title, it was, it was a tough decision because I feel like the title of the book is so important. One, it's related to the work that I've been doing with Awaken. So there's a little bit of play on word, but really the wake up for me, um, was signaling how people often wake up to the problems of social injustice in the world in an ongoing manner and how we're always waking up to different issues and different inequities, different struggles and challenges of different marginalized communities. But really, the wake up that I also wanted to underscore in the book is how we are then waking up to ourselves. Our own capacity to transform, our own capacity to hold ourselves accountable, and to wake up to the fullest extent of our humanity for us to be able to do this work. So when I talk about the wake up, it's twofold. It's waking up to the external world, but more importantly, how that then inspires us to wake up to ourselves and what we can, what what we are capable of.
0: You know, it's, you said something there just now about holding ourselves accountable. What is, you know, I I think it's especially again, like we keep talking about like this, uh, these systems that we, we live in and that we engage, we operate in, you know, I think accountability Mm -hmm. is so often tied to punishment or pain. Um, and i and i also believe and i'm not a psychologist shout out to the break room though um but i'm not a psychologist not a psychiatrist that we sometimes can veer away from even from one holding other people accountable or holding ourselves accountable because one we because of our um our our, our aversion to discomfort and frankly like our addiction to comfort like mm. what would you say accountability really looks like not only for another person but to your to what you just spoke to about uh, with your book, The Wake Up, accountability for yourself.
2: Yeah, you're so right that there is so much um, shame around accountability and uh, admitting that you may have caused harm. And part of the waking up is waking up to our own complicity in systems of oppression by the nature of our existence, because we exist in a capitalist, white supremacist, misogynist world. Um, so if we're not really conscious about and intentional about waking up to how we are perpetuating those systems of oppression, um, we're going to be complicit in oppressing other people, whether we like it or not. And I think that's a really difficult thing for people to admit because we are living in a culture of punishment and we know what happens to people who have caused harm or who are seen as racist, sexist, what have you. We exile them. We excommunicate. We punish them. We shame them, um, and that is also the teachings of voice supremacy culture. The way that we incarcerate people, the way that we criminalize people, we pathologize different marginalized communities historically. Um, all those behaviors are learned and taught, and we and we enforce them systemically and institutionally, and so. One of the biggest lessons that I've learned from studying from and learning from abolitionists and people who are doing incredibly radical work of transforming the justice system or the legal system um, and trying to abolish the prison system is this notion of how do we abolish not just the cops on the street, but the cops in our heads? And how do we make sure that we are instilling in ourselves the values of redemption, transformation, and healing and forgiveness, not for the sake of other people, but for our own humanity, and for us to be able to reclaim the narrative that change is possible. I think that, coupled with envisioning better futures, envisioning futures where all of us can be free and healed and be in collective joy and um, liberation, I think that is such a powerful vision for us to work towards, in which we then become more gentle, more compassionate with ourselves when we make mistakes and we allow for us to exist in the gray zone. So it's not that we need to absolve each other of harm that we've caused, but that before we even hold other people accountable, how do we practice us being okay with not being a good person or a bad person, racist or not a racist? How do we tread the middle ground where we're just people, we're just human beings doing things that can have bad or harmful or beneficial outcomes for marginalized people that we're trying to be in solidarity with? How do we actually get out of that binary thinking and allow ourselves to exist as a multi-dimensional human being that is capable of doing good, but that's also capable of doing harm? So how do we make sure that we stay the course and make sure we're holding ourselves accountable to the values that we hold dear to our hearts, without anyone having to call us out, because we're doing that first for ourselves, for the benefit of not just other people, but for our own humanity. And I think in order for us to do that, we gotta stop thinking in this binary way, right? Just because some uh, um, somebody said you're a good ally doesn't mean that that you get to keep that label for the rest of your life, right? Just because somebody um, you know has has uh, is identified as a good person or self identifies as a good person. That doesn't mean that their actions are going to have good outcomes. So the only thing we can control is us being human and being accountable to our own actions and impacts and being allowed that room to learn and transform um, and not running away because of the fear of shame.
0: Goodness gracious, Michelle, I want to thank you so much um, I'm gonna just say this. I'm gonna put it out because I know people say like, uh, "What's say, Speak it in the universe and all that kind of stuff." Right. Um, so I'm gonna say this: There's no reason that Michelle that we shouldn't be trying to figure out some way to collaborate together. I'm serious. Like, I love everything that you're about. I'm so happy that you're able to be a guest again on Living Corporate, and I just, I'm just honored to know you. Honored to 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 engage in your work, um, and I'm excited about us like continuing to talk both on living corporate off living corporate on other platforms continuing to amplify what you're doing um thank you so so much for being a guest and I look forward to having you back soon
2: thank you it's always a pleasure and I'm honored to be a part of this
0: awesome we'll talk to you soon
2: okay thank you
0: peace And we're back. Yo, make sure you check out The Wake Up. Shout out to Michelle Kim. Shout out to the whole Living Corporate team. I'm thankful for everything that y'all are doing. If you haven't already followed, I've been saying this every couple weeks now. Make sure you're following us, that you're subscribed. We got some new, 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 new. I don't know how else to say it. New, 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 new fire for your head top. It's coming soon. You don't want to be on the outside looking in. All right. So make sure you're following us everywhere that you can follow us. We're on all the socials. Make sure you give us five stars and up a podcast. Until next time, y'all, this has been Zach exactly with Living Corporate. Peace.
1: Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate, LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown.